Spring is coming. We're 10 days away officially from spring. And on that first day of spring is also our daughter's birthday. Our daughter, Nora, will turn three this month. And she is going to have a princess party. I'm telling you, it's Rapunzel. It's Belle. It is all the craze in our house right now. And I'll never forget when our sweet little Nora was born. We were in the hospital. And it was during, like, March Madness, like the college basketball tournament. You know what I'm talking about? And I wasn't, like, super good at holding babies yet, so I was kind of, like, getting used to, like, the one-arm cradle. Felt like I was, you know, encouraging myself, like, you can do this. You know, you can relax a little bit. And then all of a sudden, there was a big shot that the Michigan team hit. And I have this sweet little baby who's sleeping, and I'm like, yes! How do you scream and celebrate with a baby all at the same time? But I learned that, actually, little babies, they stay asleep sound asleep, even when their dad is celebrating a basketball game. But I love the month of March. It's our daughter's birthday. Spring is on the way. I love the college basketball tournament, all that good stuff. And next Sunday on St. Patrick's Day, we're going to have something very special and unique. We're going to have worship on the water at Wolfie's on Geist at 930. We will not have the 9 a.m. service here in Carmel, but join us at Wolfie's. Pastor Darren and the team will be out there. It's going to be an incredible experience. You can stick around afterwards for a great brunch and have an awesome way to start St. Patty's Day and celebrate worshiping together. And as springtime approaches, some of you are ready to like get out in the yard. You like gardening. You like mowing the grass, all that kind of stuff. I brought my wheelbarrow to here today with me. You see, when my wife and I first got married uh, and we first purchased a house, we had this pretty big yard and I was pretty excited about it. I always wanted to be like a gardener at heart, you know, and so I tried and after about a week I was like, ah, this is a lot of work. This is tough. I wish somebody would have told me that. But, you know, what was tough is we had we moved into this house and had this yard, but there was all these plants and bushes that were dying. There was bare spots in the grass And then we had those neighbors. You know those neighbors with the pristine grass that doesn't even look real. And then they had this, you know, big pergola in the backyard. I'm like, who are these people? And you would walk back there, and a squirrel would gently sit on your shoulder and whisper (laughs) sweet nothings, and butterflies would swirl about. And you're like, where am I? Like, this is crazy. I feel like I should pay them $10 for this amazing experience. And uh, so, but after, you know, we met these neighbors, we went in their backyard, I was like, wow. Um, We learned that they were going to be moving pretty quickly. And so their parting gift to us, I don't know if there was like a backhanded compliment in this or something, but they gave me this right here wheelbarrow. I don't even remember their names, but thank you for giving me the wheelbarrow. I look forward to putting it to use. More on that in a little bit. But you see, kind of in line with gardening, we're going to be talking about the Feast of First Fruits. And if you're anything like me, you're like, Feast of what? Thanksgiving? No, this is not Thanksgiving. The Feast of First Fruits. You see, we've been in a sermon series called Party Like a Rabbi, and it's talking about Jewish festivals and how we see Jesus through these Jewish festivals. You know, these were back in the Old Testament, and God instructed his people, the Jewish people, to observe these practices out of reverence and worship and thanksgiving to him. And so this week we're talking about the Feast of First Fruits. Before we get there, for some of you who may be joining us and you, you maybe missed the last couple of weeks, you know, back in Genesis at the start of the Bible, <clears throat> we see that everything begins with creation. It's the first book of the Bible. We learn about the creation of the world, we learn about God's 
people. And then in the second book, in Exodus, we see the story begins in bondage, okay? The story begins in bondage. The Hebrew people, the Jewish people, are enslaved to the Egyptians. You've maybe heard of the story of Pharaoh. Maybe you've seen the movie The Ten Commandments, Charlton Heston, right? Let my people go. And then we see the story of God's faithfulness as he delivers the Israelites from slavery. And then we see the book of Leviticus. Leviticus begins in sacrifice. This is the third book of the Bible, and God instructs certain rituals, certain ways that they're to observe and worship God. It gives us a look into the daily lives of the Jewish people. Leviticus addresses the how and why of worship back then under the Old Testament covenant. So we've been teaching about these Jewish festivals. Excuse me. That's a first. Never happened. Sorry, Josh. Last time I'll ever get up here. Um, but we're so glad you're here. And uh, let me tell you, if, if that can happen in this church, we mean it when we say no one is too far away from God to experience life change through Jesus. And we mean it because the preacher is burping, baby. It's that Defender Starbucks tea uh, from this morning. We believe the church should be a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. And we are all cleaned up, polished, and perfect around here. Amen. And so we're going to talk about the Feast of First Fruits, and we might burp some more. But before we do that, let's pray. God, thanks so much that we can laugh. Thank you that we're here. Uh, thank you for everyone that's joining us online. And pray, Lord, that you would just meet us here right in this moment. Man, for some of us, we're like Leviticus on Spring Forward Day. But here we are. Lord, we know that you have something for us in your word. Holy Spirit, speak to us in these very moments. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I want to invite you, if you've got a Bible or a Bible app, or maybe there's one in the seat back in front of you, to grab a Bible. Leviticus chapter 23, the third book of the Bible. We'll start in verse 9. And as you're getting there, you know, you might be saying, what is this Feast of First Fruits? You see, the Feast of First Fruits actually took place during the week-long Passover celebration. We learned about that the last couple of weeks. But the Feast of First Fruits was a one-day celebration, a one-day celebration. And it was to be offered on the day after the Sabbath. This was the Sabbath was a day of, of worship through rest that God instructed. It was to be observed as an acknowledgement of God's bounty, of God's provision, because the whole harvest God owns it. We get to steward it. And the feast marked the beginning of a two-month spring harvest. The Hebrew word for first fruit is bikurim, which is literally translated the promise to come. And as the name indicates, the feast of first fruits marked thanksgiving to God for the first fruits, the first things that were going to be harvested. And what we see in Leviticus 23, starting in verse 9, it says this, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you enter the land I'm going to give you, and you reap its harvest, bring to the priest a sheaf, which was like a bundle, of the first grain you harvest. And then verse 11, The priest is to wave the sheaf before the Lord, so it will be accepted on your behalf. The priest is to wave it on the day after the Sabbath. So back then, under the Old Testament law, the priest was the go-between, between the community and between God. That's how God had it structured. So you would bring your things to the priest. He would give them to the Lord on your behalf. 
And verse 12 goes on to say, On the day that you wave the sheaf, you must sacrifice as a burnt offering to the Lord a lamb a year old without defect. A couple weeks ago, we had a goat in here, which was pretty cool. It was the cutest little goat in the whole wide world. It's not lie. And then in verse 13, it goes on to say this, Together with its offering of two-tenths of an ephah of the finest flour mixed with olive oil, a food offering presented to the Lord, a pleasing aroma, and its drink offering of a quarter hin of wine. Very detailed instructions for the Feast of First Fruits. This is what God is saying. This is what I expect. The first offering was the burnt offering, and then there was a meal offering, and then even a drink offering. Verse 14 goes on to say this. You must not eat any bread or roasted or new grain until the very day you bring this offering to your God. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come wherever you live. And that last part is fascinating because remember, they have been enslaved to the Egyptians and now they're, they're wandering. You know, they're, they're waiting for God to guide them to the promised land. And he's saying, for the generations to come, I want you to continue to do this, even as you're wandering. I want you to continue to offer this to me at the Feast of First Fruits. But what's kind of crazy here is God is saying, he wasn't, you know, we've maybe heard, you've heard of the tithe, right? Where you give 10% to God. This is different. The Feast of First Fruits, he's like, anything that grew at this time, it's mine. It's the Lord's. All of it. And he's saying, I want you to take a big step of trust and give this all to me. This is what I'm asking you to do on the Feast of First Fruits. This was a huge commitment, a huge act of trust. You see, you had the whole winter season where you're kind of eating, you know, have you ever gone to the pantry and you're like, we don't have anything to eat, and you really are like, we don't have anything good to eat. You're like, do I have ramen noodles from college still back over here? <laughs> and in a similar way, maybe they had some food left over, but then they could smell the good stuff, right? The fresh harvest, right? I have a friend who has one of those green egg smokers. You know what I'm talking about? And he like smokes like ribs on there or wings or whatever. And it's like, or brisket. And you're like, man, that is so good. I can't imagine getting that fresh aroma and not wanting to just take a little piece off the grill, you know, before it's completely plated or whatever. In a similar way, they could smell, they could see this fresh harvest. But the Lord says, you may not taste of it. Give to me as an act of trust the first fruits of the harvest. This was their instructions in worship. We see it again in Deuteronomy chapter 26 as they're getting closer to this promised land that he would bring them to. And Deuteronomy 26, 1 through, C, 1 through 3 says this, When you have entered the land your God is giving you as an inheritance and have taken possession of it and settled into it, take some of the first fruits of all that you produce from the soil of the land your God is giving you and put them in a basket. Then go to the place that the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name and say to the priest in the office at that time I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come to the land that the Lord swore to our ancestors to give us he's literally saying take these first fruits of the harvest put them in this basket lay them down before the priest and then that's not it tell the story of redemption in your life come before the Lord your God and bear testimony for how he delivered you from Egypt and how he's carried you along the way. Acknowledge that God is provider. 
And I think there's this great principle, although we aren't under the Old Testament covenant anymore, right? Christ came and everything changed. We'll talk about that more in a few minutes. But there's this incredible principle right here for back then and today, a reminder that God owns all things, that he entrusts us to steward that, whether that's through our finances, our resources, our time, our skills, our abilities. He owns it, and we get to steward it. And, and also this principle of, of, of when we come before the Lord, to be reminded of his faithfulness in the past, to be reminded of what he's led us through in our past, to be reminded of the ways in which he provided for us, and to see him as loving provider, to see his faithfulness. Deuteronomy 8.10 expounds on this a little bit more. It says, when you've eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. And then there's this encouragement further on in verse 17 of chapter 8 of Deuteronomy for the Jewish people back then, but then also a principle that translates to us today. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. I've planned, I've invested, I've worked hard, I built my company, I built my business, I built this thing, I did this. But verse 18 is such a humbling reminder for us all. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you even the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. You see, God understood back then and God understands today that sometimes we want to believe all the hype about ourselves, that we got ourselves here, that we climbed the ladder, that it's our doing And often, if you're anything like me, there's areas of my life where I withhold trust in him because I am trusting in myself more. We often put our trust in ourselves and our own plans, our human-made plans. But God says, here's what I want you to do instead through the Feast of First Fruits. I want you at the Feast of First Fruits to give it all to me as an act of all-in trust, full trust and surrender. You see, the Feast of First Fruits was about your full trust. Imagine back then you've been eating the soggy, gross food in the pantry. The sweet stuff comes in. You know what I would have done back then? I would have said, God, how about I eat the good stuff? How about I get to eat the good stuff right now, get my energy, and then I'm going to work even harder for you. I'm going to praise you even more. He goes, no, 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 no. Give this first round, this first fruits of harvest to me. And in a similar way today, as we think about our full trust in God, what does it mean to trust him with our first fruits? Now, we don't have this practice where we, you know, take all of our crops or whatever and give it all to him. But what are the ways we could give our full trust with our time? What does that look like? The Feast of First Fruits, to celebrate that, it actually took time. All these festivals to prepare to slow down out of the working rhythms. Instead of making more money or achieving more this or that, it's actually slow down before God. For some of us, it might mean, what do we do when we first wake up? The first minutes of our day in prayer, in God's word, maybe encouraging somebody that we know is going through a hard time. How do we give up certain things in our life so we can invest in those people in our neighborhood? Or those people in our workplace that need the love of Jesus 
and it takes time. And let's be real, for you and me, time is unreplenishable. We don't get it back. We get March 10th, 2019, one time. What does it mean to trust God with our time, with our calendar, with our schedule? What are ways that we can give him our talents? What are ways that we give him our professional skills? Man, I've interacted with so many of you, and I see so many of you doing this, where you've got these incredible abilities, professional skills, business owners, people who lead nonprofits, and you want to use them for kingdom good, and it's amazing what God does in and through that. But what are some of those skills, or maybe your spiritual gifts? Maybe it's volunteering or serving people in our community or starting an outpost where you could give your talent to the Lord as well. And then is he going to go there? Yeah, he's going to go there. What are ways that we can give God our treasure and our money? What does that look like? You see, there's all these sacrifices in the Old Testament, these offerings, these festivals that the Lord would invite them to participate in. They were the law. You see, giving back to the Lord was seen throughout the Old Testament. The Feast of First Fruits was one way. They would give the first of crops over to the Lord, and they'd worship him through this feast. But then they were instructed to give a 10% tithe as well in a certain kind of way. And this biblical principle of a tithe, giving a tenth, was an act of worship back in the Old Testament. But here's what's interesting. In the New Testament, it is not explicitly stated to give a tithe. See, tithing in of itself is not an ironclad rule for Christians today as it was for the Israelites under the Old Testament law because Jesus came to fulfill the law. That said, giving our first fruits to God, giving our best to God is a biblical principle we see throughout all of human history. True of God's people in all places at, in all times. 10% is a great place to start with that to give back to God, to, to have some accountability of a number of what he's entrusted us to steward, to say, God, I'm posturing myself in a position of trust to give this to you. You see, Jesus was after the heart in all things. So if the Mosaic law said tithe 10% and Jesus came to fulfill the law, let me get this real quick. In the Old Testament, you'd give the tithe and then you'd do things like feast of first fruits and all these other sacrifices and it usually equal to like 20 to 30% of the stuff you had. That's pretty intense, huh? Think about 20 or 30% if God still had that in place. Man, what would that look like? That's pretty intense, right? But if Jesus came to fulfill the law, what kind of generosity does the gospel invite us into, not mandate over us? Does he invite us into? We see greater generosity than even just 10% of finances in the New Testament. Look at the life of the disciples. They left their careers. They left the fast track to management. They left their families. They left money on the table to go follow him. We see in Acts chapter 2 that there's this great picture of generosity in the early church where they shared their land, they shared their possessions, they were giving it away, all for the glory of God because of what Jesus Christ had done in and through them. But we also know this, Jesus went after the heart. And we see at one point, Jesus says, because he knew today and back then what was in people's hearts, that where your treasure is, there your heart is also. And he knew that there would be some of us in our lives, and I've done this in my life, where we elevate money over God. We elevate our stuff or our position over God. 
So he invites us to lead with trust. He doesn't mandate that we give a certain thing, but he says, I want, I want your full trust. And what does that look like in every area of your life? You see, back to the Old Testament, what was God trying to teach the Jewish people through this feast of first fruits? He was trying to teach them full trust, to trust him as provider, that he would do it again, that he would provide again when it seemed bleak. And I know that there are people in this room that you're feeling that today, where God is inviting you into a next step of trust in an area of your life, in an area of your career, in a relationship with your finances, and it's scary. It's unpredictable. It's ground that's shaking, and he's saying, come here, take a step. Just as he did then, give me, all your, give me your trust. Take a step. There's a man, his name was Charles Blondine. He was a French tightrope walker, and he was always taking a risky next step. This guy would rock across like a half-inch tightrope in thickness that stretched 1,100 feet, about a quarter of a mile, 160 feet suspended in the air over Niagara Falls in the 1860s. Pretty wild, huh? He was the daredevil of his time. He would do all kinds of tricks, walking back and forth. This was not just a one-time thing for him. He was doing this all the time. People from Canada and America, all over the place, were coming to see this amazing act. Presidents would even come and watch him. But every step was risky. Every step was risky. More on him in a minute. You see, sometimes in our lives, and we see this throughout Scripture, God wants to see what we're made of. God wants to see what are you made of. In Genesis chapter 12, we see the story of Abraham. And and God says, Abraham, I want you to leave it all. I want you to leave your country. I want you to to move uh, with me into a new space and territory. I want you to move on everything. Trust me with this next step. And it was a big step. And then in in chapter 16, he reveals a little bit more, and he says, I'm going to make you the father of many nations, of a great nation, and there will be legacy of your generation, generation after generation. And then he reveals the next step, and Abraham is kind of saying to God, hey, God, you remember how you said, you know, come follow me and do this my way, and that you're going to make me the father of many nations? Well, I'm going to need some kids to do that. I'm going to need a son. And there were times that Abraham tried to take the situation into his own hands. But eventually, about a century later, about 100 years later, God provided Abraham and Sarah with a son named Isaac. Happy story, right? They finally get this kid that they've longed for. God's going to provide through this. And then God says, plot twist, hey, Abraham... I actually want you to go to this region of Moriah and go up this mountain, and I want you to sacrifice your son. Hold on a minute. Even for, like, Old Testament standards, this is some crazy Game of Thrones stuff, right? Like, this is intense. Like, this is messed up. This was not what God normally invited people into and asked people to do. Sacrifice your kid? Wait, 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 wait. You told me to take these steps, and I took them, and, and then you provided the son, and this, this is what I get in return? But instead, Abraham went up the mountain. And Abraham told his servants, we will come back to you. We, 
implying both he and Isaac. Abraham must have believed that God would either provide a substitute sacrifice or that he was going to raise his son from the dead because he was going up there with the intent, as torn as he was, to follow God's clear voice to do this. And so Abraham raises the knife. He's getting ready to kill his one and only son that he's waited 100 years for. And the angel of the Lord says, stop! Don't do this! And as Abraham looked up, by no coincidence, he saw a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And he sacrificed the animal that was provided by God instead of his son. And this incident foreshadows God's sacrifice of his only son, Jesus Christ, on the cross at Calvary for the sin of the world. God's great love required of himself what he did not require of Abraham in that moment. And Mount Moriah, where this event took place, means God will provide. And King Solomon later built his first temple there. As we fast forward into the life, into the ministry of Jesus, when he was walking the earth, Matthew 4 Uh, verses 18 through 20. It says, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. So just a normal day for them. And then verse 19, Jesus said, come follow me and I will send you out to fish for people. And get this, verse 20. At once they left their nets and they followed him. God wanted to see what they were made of. He invited them into something unique. Their full trust. They left it all behind. Their careers. And Jesus didn't bait and switch them and say, I've got a great salary package and benefits and a fast track to the top. People are just going to love you. No. What ended up happening is they took this step. Most of them were killed for their faith in Jesus. You know, when God asks us to drop our nets, to take a step, what is that right now in your life? What is that thing where you are just like holding back, withholding your trust, that you're holding onto it tightly? You know, when we look at the Feast of First Fruits, it was all about their full trust. What was amazing is we look at how Leviticus 23 in this portion about the Feast of First Fruits connects to the life of Jesus. Stay with me here. In the New Testament, Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says this. But, it is, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Has been raised. Okay, Paul's like a lawyer, philosopher. He's trying to lead him through this logically, right? And, and, and here's what's amazing is the tension of Christianity is not that Jesus was a person. The tension of Christianity is not even that Jesus died. The tension of Christianity is that he didn't stay dead. The tension of Christianity is that we believe that Jesus lived a sinless life, was his perfect sacrifice on the cross in accordance with his Father's plan, and then he rose again victorious. This is the scandal of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is where there is tension. 
That in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 22, we see the fulfillment of the Feast of First Fruits by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, God's only Son, because it pointed out in verse 20 this, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also must come through a man. This is where Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. For as in Adam all die, the first man who was with sin, who brought sin into this world, so in Christ all will be made alive. The Passover, stay with me here. I know these festivals get a little complex, but there's a beauty of the thoughtfulness of God and his plan to reveal who he was to the Jewish people now and to all people today. The Passover was fulfilled by the death of Jesus, the promised Messiah, the feast of unleavened bread by the sinlessness of his blood sacrifice, and the feast of first fruits was fulfilled by the resurrection of Jesus. You see, the term first fruits means the first of more to come. There's more coming, baby. He rose again, and guess what? Those who are in relationship with Christ, he's coming back for us. He's coming back that we get to join him for all eternity in his presence, those who have a relationship with him. Not because of what we've done, but because of what he's done. Believers in Christ will be resurrected as he was to be in his presence. 1 Corinthians 15, 23 through 26. But each in turn, Christ, the firstfruits. When he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he destroyed all the dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. There's no coincidence here. Stay with me. Jesus was resurrected on the first Sunday after Passover in keeping in step with the Mosaic command. So the first fruits were offered on a Sunday, and it's no accident that Jesus' resurrection was on that very day. Some of you are good with calendar planning. You're type A. You couldn't have planned this, this way or this well. Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. God will gather the rest, those who are in relationship with him, to join him for all eternity. Jesus is the first fruits. Back to the story about Charles Blondine, the great Blondine, the tight rope walker. Not only would he walk across, he got so good, he would walk across this tightrope over the Niagara Falls. He would even take a little stove and walk across and literally make an omelet while he was going. (laughs) He would ride bicycles across this tightrope. There's even a time where he carried someone on his back. Pretty wild. He'd walk across with stilts. This guy was the talk of the town. One day he got a wheelbarrow out. He starts pushing it around. I can barely push this thing on, like, you know, stable ground, right? So he's pushing this thing around, back and forth, just like he does, his normal thing, wowing people, blowing people's minds. He's walking back and forth with this wheelbarrow. He's got a sack of potatoes in there, and he says, who thinks I can put somebody in here and walk them across the tightrope? And everyone's like, we think you can do it. You're amazing. We've seen you do so many incredible things before. Man, you can totally do it. And he goes, do I have a volunteer? (laughs) And it got really quiet on this particular day. 
No one trusted him enough. Although they had seen him walk back and forth with the wheelbarrow time and time again, although they had heard stories of hundreds of times of him cooking omelets or walking on stilts or whatever it might be, he says, who would get into the wheelbarrow? And I can't help but think of an analogy of our relationship with God. That we've seen him do amazing things time and time again in our lives and the lives of people around us as we look back into scripture, what he's done, how he has provided. And so my question for you today is what is keeping you from getting in that wheelbarrow? What's keeping you from getting in that wheelbarrow to trust him with everything in your life? You know, there's some people in this room, some people joining us online where you've never heard the gospel. You've never heard that there is good news for you and for me, that, that Jesus is willing to change your eternal destiny, that he's willing to change your today. And it doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It doesn't mean it's going to be perfect. But he's saying, I want to take on your sin and shame through the perfect sacrifice of my son. And I want you to be raised to new life with him. And he offers that. And he's saying, will you trust me? Will you trust me that I'm good, that I've got good for you? In a relationship with my son, Romans 8, 1 through 2 says, Therefore, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, none. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. And then there's others of us in this room, or maybe we've been following Jesus for a few months or a few years. What's that area of your life that you're not willing to kind of throw in that metaphorical wheelbarrow of trust? What's that area of your life? What's that relationship? What's that ministry? What's that career path? What are the finances? What is it that you're withholding from giving him your wholehearted trust, the trust that he was inviting the Israelites into with the Feast of First Fruits to say, God, I, I, I don't know what's going to happen here, but I'm giving it all to you. And let me tell you, even more so than the great blondine who walked across the tightrope, that God's track record of faithfulness and provision is deep. It is wide. It is true. So what is that next step that you need to take? You see, when we step in obedience, God is always faithful to step before us in some form of provision, even if it's the provision that we didn't even see coming. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this moment. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for everyone in this room. Thank you for those joining us online, Lord. And I just pray that in these moments, as we see your faithfulness demonstrated through the Old Testament festivals and how Jesus Christ came to fulfill that in such an abundant way, Lord, we are here before you. And there are people in this room there are people joining us online that for the first time in their life, they need to trust you with their life. They need to trust you with their eternity, Lord. And you make it simple for us. You say, if we, are, we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord, he's faithful and just to forgive us all unrighteousness. And if that's you in this room or that's you joining us online, you can pray this simple prayer between you and God quietly. Lord, I need you. I know that you lived a sinless life, that you were the perfect sacrifice for all mankind. I put my faith and trust in you. 
I believe that you rose again. I believe that you want to bring new life to me now and forevermore. God, I trust you and surrender my whole life. Lord, for others of us in the room, as we think about this metaphor, as we think about this wheelbarrow, what do we need to put in it? This metaphorical wheelbarrow, what do we need to trust you with, Lord? Whether it's a relationship, a reconciliation, a career path, a deal that went south, a relationship that's going downhill, someone's illness or sickness in our family, our finances. God, we want to just surrender it to you. God, you understand the complexities of our life. You understand the the trials and the challenges in front of us. Lord, and we just want to say we're giving it to you. We're putting it in the wheelbarrow. We're trusting you, Lord. We want to give you our full trust. And so, God, we're here. Speak to us. Move in us in these moments. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.